Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is a 10-part series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. It went from January 11th to February 8th, and the title of the class I taught was The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. There were five classes, and each class turned out to be two parts with a break in between. So what you're about to hear is class one, part one, of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. You know, (laughs) and and my sense of humor, I've got to, okay, we're up and running here. Okay, so a little bit about me and 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 how I ended up sort of dressing like this and teaching a class at LMU. Um, I um, I was born a Lutheran and was very happy, I suppose, with that because I was young, and my parents were Lutheran and they were happy that I was a Lutheran. And uh, then I ended up in uh, high school in the 60s. And it was really important for us to uh, question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So I evolved into an agnostic. I, I thought there might have been something out there, but I wasn't quite sure. And, and that's what most, you know, um, I still felt sort of like there needed to be a divine being of some sort. That gave me comfort. And, and everybody I knew felt that way, too. So I wasn't quite, um, I, I didn't have the kind of confidence that would lead me away from that at that point. Well, that worked fine for a very long time. I was sort of like a, a secular humanist agnostic, thinking there was something up there greater than I am. And I, I like the idea of up there. I don't know why it's always up there, but it is. And then I turned 30. And I was like depressed for two years. 28 to 30 was one of the hardest times of my life because, you know, I was crossing over. I was going to be old now. And, and I really didn't have the tools necessary to sort of understand what that meant. It just seemed like, you know, I was joining another team. Uh, and if anybody has ever seen Logan's Run... Uh, there's a wonderful scene in there where you have a crystal implanted in your palm. And when you turn 30, it starts to blink. And then the police come and find you and take you away. And then you're never seen again. And so those kind of movies were really popular when I was turning 30. And uh, so it, it was a struggle. And uh, I quit my job of 10 years, went on the road for a couple of months. Uh, I quit smoking. I joined a gym. And I decided to get a religion because people over 30 died quickly and I wanted to be prepared. So I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And I read that book cover to cover, chapter by chapter. I read Buddhism twice and I decided that was the religion for me. Very practical. <laughs> and, and then I got another book, the phone book. 
and found a meditation center, which uh, actually is where I live right now, in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, and and when I started, what I wanted to do was be a Buddhist. You know, I didn't necessarily want to meditate, and I didn't necessarily want to study the sutras. I, I wanted to be a Buddhist. But you can't be a Buddhist unless you meditate and study the sutras. At least, that's what my teacher told me. So uh, every Monday, I showed up and started to meditate. And I would sit on the floor, and there was never enough heat in the room. And the cushions were very firm, and the floor had a really thin carpet. And it was one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life, and I couldn't realize how this was going to do anything for me other than increase my suffering rather than reduce my suffering. Uh, uh, but I hung in there because my teacher, Shinzen Young, would speak in terms that I hadn't heard before and relate to the world in a way that I wanted to relate to the world. And I couldn't see what he saw. I couldn't speak like he spoke, and, and I wanted that. I wanted to be like him. So I was lucky to get a teacher like that. Uh, and I was with him for two years. And, and I would go once a week, uh, uh, sometimes once every other week, depending on my schedule. I'd practice meditation. I would listen to him speak about the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, or the ultimate reality. I, would start, I started to buy some books on Buddhism. And some of them are pretty easy to read, but pretty difficult to understand, and some are really hard to read and impossible to understand. So I realized very early on that I wasn't going to be a Zen guy, because the Zen people were really abstract, and, and they had a much different way of looking at the world. And, and my mind wasn't that abstract. I was a practical kind of guy. And, and so I found early Buddhism to speak to me the most clearly that in early Buddhism it's laid out in one, two, three, four. It's, they have little stories to go along with that. There's, there's, it's just, it just, I understood what they were talking about. And I let those Zen people do what they needed to do. And I sort of went with the early Buddhists. Well, I found a teacher from Sri Lanka, a Theravada elder from Sri Lanka, Dr. Havan Polaratanasara. He was on Crenshaw Boulevard at Dharma Vijaya Buddhist Vihara. And I went and knocked on the door and said, I'd like to take some classes with you. And he said, come back next week. Because <laughs> he didn't have any classes. He didn't have any students. But I showed up the following week and I was the student. <laughs> and we started to, you know, work as teacher-student. And the first book that we went through was called the Vasudhi Maga, The Path of Purification. And it was a real simple way of learning. What I would do is I'd sit at the table with him, and I'd read a couple pages, and he'd say, okay, do you have any questions? And I'd say, yeah, what does this mean? And he would go in and explain it to me. And then I'd read a couple more pages, and he'd say, okay, do you have any questions? So it was that kind of thing. You couldn't get better teachers than that. You know, he just spent time with me. One of my questions uh, was, uh, did they have toothbrushes back then? You know, again, being a practical sort of fellow. And, and he said, oh, yeah, there are these little, you know, roots that you sort of, you know, um, uh, massage and they turn into bristles. And, and it was one of the chores of the student to bring his teacher toothbrushes so he could keep his teeth clean. So those are some of the questions I asked. Not very philosophical. Uh, um, but I wasn't there yet. I, so I was just curious. 
And then I really struggled when we got to the parts about the supernatural experiences, like levitation, reading minds, uh, seeing into the future. And, and I'm thinking, what is this all about? I said, is this true, Dr. Ratnasar? Do people really do that? He said, well, that's not important. He said, that's something else. Let's keep reading. So he was, I think he understood where I was coming from, and, and, uh, and so he didn't want to confuse me about that sort of ultimate reality and relative reality that we find when we study Buddhism. So he was my teacher for 16, 17 years until he passed away in 2000. And I was so lucky to start with an American and, and end up with uh, an ethnic Buddhist because I got to see both sides of it. You know, and I, I realize American Buddhism is going to be a lot different than Sri Lankan Buddhism or Chinese Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism because we're different and we need to look at it in a different way. So um, I've had invitations to go overseas, but I'm thinking, well, they have plenty of monks over there. They don't need me over there. Uh, they need me here. And I only speak English, so I probably wouldn't work very well over there anyway. Uh, so there I was studying practicing, reading, getting a little deeper in my understanding of what the Dharma was, the teachings of the Buddha. And, and for the first time in my life, I realized my life sucked. I thought I had a pretty good life. You know, I was working, and, and I had a car, and I had an apartment, and, and, and you know, a guitar that I would try to play occasionally. And, and I thought I was, you know, hey, nothing wrong with my life until I came to Buddhism. And then Buddhism said, no, your life, your life is, is very uncomfortable. You're filled with stress. There's suffering everywhere you look. And I still couldn't see it yet. Couldn't see it yet. I was deluded. I was steeped in ignorance. And it took me a long time to break through and see that life is unsatisfactory. Now, I'm not going to uh, try to convince you of that. Uh, but that's the first step in understanding Buddhism, that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And when I go to uh, high schools like Apollos Verdi's high school, I was there a couple months ago to give a presentation, it's a tough sell. You know, when I drove into that parking lot at my little Suzuki Swift and I saw, you know, <laughs> the cars that were already parked there, I'm going, okay, you know, how am I going to convince these students that life sucks? You know, and, it, and you can even see the ocean from the campus. Um, wow. So that's, that's sort of where we start when we explain Buddhism. We start about how difficult life is. So it's probably not surprising that when I became ordained, the first phone call I got was from a man named Deacon Szymanski, who has now passed away, but he was a chaplain at L.A. County State Prison for Men in Lancaster, California. And he said to me, we're looking for someone who would be willing to volunteer to speak with the Buddhist prisoners. And of course, my first, uh, the first words out of my mouth were, there are Buddhists in prison? <laughs> you know, all the books I read didn't lead me to believe we went in that direction. You know, I thought we were all bodhisattvas you know, being of service to community around us. But there are plenty of Buddhists in prison. And, and so for a year, I rode my motorcycle 
to Lancaster, California, once a week to talk to the Buddhist prisoners. Now, if you've ever ridden a motorcycle to Lancaster, it's like driving into hell uh, because it's always hotter in the summer, colder in the winter, and it never stops blowing. The wind is always blowing like crazy. I'm shifting lanes, not even knowing it. But I committed myself for a year, and so there I went. And, and I learned some pretty powerful lessons. And one of the lessons I learned was when you take women and children out of society, it's a pretty uncomfortable place to be. There were no soft or round edges. We're talking 4,300 men. Now, I know they have some female guards, but they, they sort of become androgynous. They're almost manlike, you know, taking care of these prisoners all the time. And so I had to wake up to the fact that power struggles everywhere, you know, and I wasn't appreciated up there by the staff. Because when you have a volunteer going to a state prison, it's more work for them. They have to look out for you. So they gave me this little thing that looked like a garage door opener, and they said, if something happens, just push the button and we'll come and save you. Now, Buddhism doesn't really encourage faith, but I got faith when I held that. I had faith. I knew they would come and save me. At least I kept my fingers crossed. And then one of the guards said to me, right in my face, why are you here? And I was sort of taken aback because I had my little badge and, and I had permission to be there. I said, well, I'm a Buddhist volunteer. And I've come to speak to the Buddhist prisoners. And he said, hell, next we're going to have astrologers coming up here. So he was a little disappointed that I was there. But I pushed all that aside and met my prisoners, met my Buddhist prisoners. And we were in the chapel. They have a chapel, and the Christians were over there, and the Buddhists were over here, and the Muslims were over there, and we had our meeting. And, and nobody, well, there were a few ethnic Buddhists, but most of the people that were there were just people that had found out about yoga or Buddhism or meditation and wanted to learn a little bit more. So I realized what I needed to do was pretty much focus on meditation. And, and how we used to meditate in prison is we get these wool blankets and fold them up, and those would be our cushions. So we'd have meditation practice every time I went up there. And then I would tell stories about Buddhism, or I would come to some philosophical points of Buddhism. Nothing too heavy, nothing too moral or ethical. I just wanted to be, you know, one of the guys, if you will, and just let them see how they could be better human beings, but not tell them they had to be or not tell them that they weren't. Everyone has a Buddha nature, according to Buddhism. So everyone has the potential for human perfection. That's how I look at it. Well, I was up there for a year, and then I got another phone call from Mr. Nori Russell in Central Juvenile Hall, Eastlake, downtown, next to, UCLA, next to USC Medical Center. And he asked me if I would be willing to go down and talk with the young people about Buddhism and meditation, because he had just read something about meditation and thought it would be useful for the young people to hear about that. And so I asked him, well, are there any Buddhists there in Juvenile Hall? And he said, no, we haven't found any. They haven't said they were Buddhists, but... but I don't think that matters. I think the skill of meditation transcends religious uh, uh, diversity. I mean, it's just it's a useful skill that all humans can, can appreciate. So I went down there, and I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to a junior uh, or a juvenile hall before. I'd only been to the prison. 
And there are like 600 kids, five to 600 kids down there every day. From The youngest one I saw was eight years old, and the oldest one was 18. And after that, they go to youth authority and then to prison. Uh, out of those, uh, that number, they had about 40, 50 children. Oh, pardon me. They had 40, 50 women, girls, who were there, who were kept separate from the guys, needless to say. And they were very guarded. You, it, was, it's, it was difficult to get access to them because they were, you know, cautious about the women there. So I, I, I didn't see any women or girls for the first few months that I was there. I was talking to the guys. And my first presentation was in the High Risk Offenders Unit. And these were guys who had done carjacking and murder and rape. And uh, these were the tough ones. These were the guys who probably weren't going to get out for a long time. And they're going to go right from juvenile hall to prison. And so that was my first presentation. Huh? And so I walk in, and I felt immediately comfortable. Every guy there had my haircut. And I said, okay, we can work with this. And I gave my first presentation to them. And I said, do you realize that life sucks? And every guy said, yeah, of course. It's not news to us. We want to know how to end that. And so, so I, I saw, this was my audience, that people who have a good life, who are doing fine, who don't seem to have too many problems, Buddhism doesn't maybe ring true with them right away. Philosophically, yes. But from a practical standpoint, well, it's an interesting religion or it's an interesting philosophy. But these guys, I felt I could be of some help to because I could give them school, skills and techniques that would allow them to live in this environment in a skillful and perhaps more relaxed and accepting way. So I set about giving presentations once a week, sometimes twice a week because it was a lot closer for me to go there than Lancaster. And then I was able to find other people to help me. And we had a program of yoga and Tai Chi and Aikido. And I ended up teaching Buddhism and we had somebody else teach meditation. We had meditation teachers from various centers in Los Angeles going there to work with the kids. You know, And, and I was there for five years. And it was really a, a powerful experience for me. And one of the things that I came up with was this. Those kids aren't evil. I didn't see one evil kid there. I saw a bunch of unskillful young people who needed to learn some new skills. And that was my job, to simply give them some new skills so they could reduce their suffering and the people around them could suffer less as well. Well, after five years... I answered the phone again. Every time I answer the phone, my life changes. And it was the uh, mayor of Garden Grove. And, and uh, well, actually, it was his office. It wasn't him. And his office asked me if I would be willing to be the keynote speaker at the mayor's prayer breakfast in Garden Grove because they had seen a couple articles in the paper about me and thought that I might have something interesting to say. Well, my response was... Um, I don't pray, but I do eat breakfast. Is that okay? And they said, yes, that's fine. We'll serve you breakfast, and, and you can tell us about yourself in Buddhism. So I went down there and gave my presentation. I brought my harmonica with me. That always saves me if things go wrong. And uh, it wasn't more than a week later that the chief of police, the office of the chief of police of Garden Grove called, and asked me if I would be interested in being a police chaplain. 
for Garden Grove. They were trying to diversify their chaplain's program. And this was volunteer, of course, but they, they had never had a Buddhist chaplain before and asked if I'd be interested. And to be honest with you, one of my favorite shows was Cops. And I thought, well, I've been behind bars now as a volunteer for six years. So maybe it would be good for me to see if the people that put them there are suffering too. And so I joined up. I signed up. And I have a, a polo shirt in black that says police chaplain. I have a hat that says police chaplain. I have a jacket that says police chaplain. And, and the reason I have chaplain all over my body is so if something goes down, the bad guys will recognize me as a religious person. And so the thought that comes to my mind was, well, if the bad guy's an atheist, I'm going first, you know. Uh, <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> and I've been doing that now for the past going on six years. It's, uh, well, actually, no, seven years. I started in 2000. So now we're in 2007. So I've been doing that, and, and I ended my volunteer work with the juvenile hall and the prisons because I felt there was a conflict of interest to be with the police department and then go visit the people we arrested. So uh, I'm, I'm now with the police department as part of my volunteer work, part of my service to community. And, and I've earned, learned an awful lot. Uh, most of the stuff they go on, it's domestic disputes. It's just people can't live together very well. You know, husband's having problems with the wife, the, the kids are having problems with the parents, you know, the dog ran away, can't find him, let's call the police department. And, and so we drive up, and, and I get to go right in there with them and, you know, uh, on everything they do. You know, now, if something goes down, if guns are drawn, I, I'm told to go back to the car. I, you know, they're going to keep me safe. I, and I don't carry a weapon, and, and that's how it should be for a chaplain. We don't, we're not... We're not in that business. We're not in that line of work. I think of the chaplains as the heart in the police department, the heart in the police car, because they have a job to do, to protect and to serve. And we have a job to do, too, to encourage them not to close their hearts. And it can be challenging sometimes, because they've seen a lot. Now, besides doing that, and that's, that's, that, that commitment's only a couple times a month, so it's not a giant commitment. Uh, besides doing that, I'm the Buddhist chaplain at UCLA. And we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday, and we meet in the Catholic Center. And, and the Catholics are really cool when it comes to Buddhism because of the Second Vatican Council and the document Nostra Aetate, which said it was okay to talk to Buddhists. Now, the Protestants aren't there yet. And that's okay. One day they'll get there. But the Catholics say, okay, you know, how can we share perspectives? What can we do to work together? And when is it okay to say we can't meet because you, um, your philosophical perspective is far too different from ours? So there's some parts we can't meet on, a lot of parts we can meet on. But we can always come together for dialogue. And that's wonderful. In fact... A little digression here. I just got back from the second Monks in the West Conference, which was held in St. John's Abbey in, um, in Minnesota. And, and we had 15 Catholic monks, and we had 15 Buddhist monks come together for four days, and we talked about celibacy. 
And, and I had the privilege of being one of the first presenters to talk about why Buddhist monks are celibate. And then the Catholic talked about why Catholic monks are celibate. And then the second uh, round of presentations was how do Buddhist and Catholic monks practice celibacy? What are some of the techniques they use? And then the last uh, presentation was what happens if you break your vows? You know, what are, what are, what are the penalties uh, when you lose your celibacy vow. And so it was interesting to hear the Catholics. It was interesting to hear the Buddhists, too. Uh, and for me, it was really cool because we had some, some priests that had been ordained for over 50 years as a Catholic priest. And it was so cool to hear and see what they did as a monastic because I'm a monastic as well. I'm celibate as well. But I live in downtown Los Angeles, so I sort of like live in a city parish. It's, it's, we're not cloistered. We have helicopters and, and gunshots and graffiti and trash everywhere. It's not like going to Collegeville, Minnesota, to St. John's Abbey, which is lakes and trees and, and benches along these little pathways. And Oh, it's just beautiful. And they have big rooms they get to stay in, too, the monks. You know, I have a small room that I stay in. And they have really good food, too. <laughs> you know? And I was surprised with how well they ate. And one of the things they did during supper, the evening meal, they had one of the monks read from a book. So instead of having a radio on or TV on, one of the monks would read. And we were, we were listening to uh, uh, the life history of a- Alexander Hamilton. That was the book that was chosen for that month, I guess. I thought, this is so cool. You know, I, I'm, I'm learning something. I'm eating good food. I'm with fellow monks. You know, and and I sort of like the idea of of watching all the monks eat, because how do men eat when there aren't any women in the room? You know, and some of the monks ate alone. They would just find a table over here, be all alone. Some of the monks had little clusters, you know, and they cluster and they and if they were allowed to speak, if that was a speaking meal, then they would share their day's events with each other. And, and, and some of the monks were really picky about their food, I noticed. They would, they would look through it, and it didn't look right. And, they, you know, and other monks just ate anything. And, and so it was sort of fun to be in this whole environment. You know? uh, one of the funny things that happened uh, was uh, there was the time change. We were, I think, going ahead an hour, and, and the hurricane signal went off, which was outside the buildings, and this is sort of monolith, and, and it went off like at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning when the time was supposed to change, because the computer that runs the clock couldn't figure out how to do it. Well, you know, I wake up, and I didn't know what it was. I'm in Arizona, uh, pardon me, I live in California, and we don't have hurricane sirens, you know. We have earthquakes and stuff. And so I'm in the hallway, and I see all these monks running back and forth in their little boxer shorts, T-shirts, you know. And, and so I stop one, and I look at him, and I said to him, what does this mean? What does this mean? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it means. And I just, you know, and, 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 and I saw the, the problem of flexibility, when you live a monk's life, because your schedule is, you know, you're up in the morning for prayer, you got breakfast, you got your duties, you got lunch, you got prayer, you got dinner, you got prayer, you got the Eucharist. I mean, their, their day is, you know, set in stone pretty much, you know. And now something is different. <laughs> well, I, I talked to one of the Buddhist monks uh, who was there at the conference, and I said, what did you do when the siren went off? Well, he said, I held on to my robes. 
because I thought this could have been uh, the rapture. And in the rapture, apparently your clothes are taken off. So now the Buddhist monk was holding on to his robes in case this might be the rapture. The Catholics were running up and down the halls. And I'm just looking for the bathroom. I'm thinking, I'm going to go back to sleep. And it worked out fine. But what an interesting experience that was for me to do that. Now, if you're curious about why Buddhist monks are celibate, we're celibate for two primary reasons. The first reason is we live in an economy of generosity. We live because other people donate to us. And we need to have a simple lifestyle. If I have a SUV parked out there, a girlfriend, and I want to go to the movies, and I'm giving a Dharma talk, and I say, hey, could you put a few more dollars in the kitty? Because the movie prices just went up. Uh, I probably wouldn't last very long, you know. So the first reason we're celibate is because we need to lead a simple lifestyle so we can be supported by lay people. Now, where I live, which is the International Buddhist Meditation Center, I'm supported by them. I'm given a room to live in. I have health insurance. And I get a few dollars each month that allows me to eat and buy new socks. And, um, and then if I make any other money out giving talks and stuff, I'm allowed to keep that. Uh, so far, the money I've made hasn't allowed me to pay taxes yet. I don't make that much yet. Uh, but I do pay Social Security, which is sort of a bummer because that's, you know, it's a lot of money at my level of income. But I realize that I'm getting old, and Social Security may be a benefit to me in a couple of years. And I know Medicare and Medicaid will. I'm assuming all those will be in place when it's my turn. I have faith. So, so that's how I live. But some monks, especially American monks and American nuns, have no support at all. They don't have a center that supports them. Some of them have to find a job so they can have a place to live and have money. And so they're part-time monks and nuns. Uh, and a lot of monks and nuns in America, Buddhist monks and nuns, and I think Catholic nuns as well, don't have health insurance. It's a very expensive proposition to insure a bunch of old people. And I'm one of them. You know, I'm 57 now, and every year, man, everything gets more expensive. You know? So we're in sort of dire straits right now because we have a lot of second-generation Buddhist monks and nuns who are getting close to their retirement age, and they're not financially able to not work or not go out and, and have to get some income. Some of them are living in group housing to, to, you know, uh, so, the, so the rent isn't, can be divided by them. They eat together, so food you know, is a little less expensive. But that's, that's one of the reasons why Buddhist monks and nuns are celibate, because we need to have a simple lifestyle so we can be supported. The second reason, and probably the most important reason, philosophically, is Buddhism is about one thing. It's about being free. It's about being free. Freedom is the end result of the Buddhist path. And you can't be free. I, now, please don't hold this against me. You can't be free in relationship for the most part. It's a codependent kind of thing. So, so we need to stay single. And, and if we do achieve nirvana, we're probably going to be single anyway. If you look at what happened to the Buddha in his life, he was married, he had a child, 
And when he achieved nirvana, he, he no longer was a husband, no longer was a father. And his gift to his ex-wife and his child was to ordain them. They became a Buddhist nun and a Buddhist monk. Now, that may not sound like much of a gift uh, in the West, but it, uh, quite remarkable, I think, that his wife became a nun. So, now, uh, get back on track here. Uh, not only am I uh, a Buddhist chaplain at UCLA, but I'm also in the UCLA Medical Center, part of the Spiritual Care Committee. And I give presentations to new chaplains at UCLA on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. And I was just in Santa Monica at the UCLA Medical Center a couple days ago and gave a presentation to the new chaplains. And, and I looked at the chaplains and I said, are you Christian? Yes. Are you Christian? Yes. Are you Christian? Yes. Okay, good. Okay. Well, I've got some work to do now. I said, When's, when did you take your last comparative religions class? Well... Some didn't, and some had taken it a long time ago. Now, Buddhists do go to the hospital. We, you know, the Buddha assured us, if we're born, we're going to have to get sick, we're going to have to get older, we're going to have to die. And so, as, as a Christian chaplain, they may be a bit confused at how to approach a Buddhist patient. So it's sort of my job to give them a background of Buddhism, and then perhaps some ideas of how they might approach a Buddhist patient if they can't find a Buddhist chaplain to help them. And so that's been really challenging for me, much more challenging than being a police chaplain, because when I go into the hospital, it is tough. Everybody there is really suffering, people that work there and the people that end up there. And then you've got the smells, and you have people that are going to die, and you have people are going to get better. And, and you have relatives and, and friends that are sad, because their loved one is sick or terminal. And, whoa, talk about needing Buddhism. Talk about seeing suffering. And talk about not wanting to take that home with you. How can I go into that setting, have equanimity, not indifference, but equanimity, and be of service to them, and not leave totally depressed with the idea that my life is going to be just like that one day, so what's the point in living any longer and that kind of stuff, you know? So I, I, I've learned probably more in my service to community about Buddhism than I did reading those books or meditating. And I guess that's how it's supposed to work with your religion. I think, uh, at least how I look at it, is we, you know, not only do we have a religion, but we should use it. It's an important tool in the life of a human. And, and I often um, speak in this way to people who are, have a religion. I say, when is the last time you talked to your minister or pastor or priest or monk or imam about how to die? Have you ever spoken to them about how to die? Because that's the one thing you're sure of. Most people speak to them about how to live. You know, so I, I think it's interesting, and I didn't think that way either until I went to the hospitals and saw how important it is to have a religion when you die, because that becomes your refuge. Now, I never looked at it that way in my younger years. My refuge uh, was other things, but now I see the importance of having a religion. So I'm not encouraging you, if you don't have a religion, to get one, 
but I see the importance of having a religion and, and being clear on what it is and not mixing this religion and that religion and coming up with your own combination and your own brand new religion that's personally yours and always works because it's, I've seen people at the point of death who you don't want to be confused there. You want to be real clear on what you need to do to get to that next place, whatever that next place is in your religion, whether it be heaven or in the Buddhist sense, another rebirth, have to die now so we can live again, things like that. So I, I'm really lucky. I have far too much to do. And, and everything I do just makes my life a little better, a little more fulfilled. And most of the time I don't get paid for what I do. And that's really nice too. Because the best thing about being a volunteer is you can always leave. You know? And so your boss has a little different way of looking at you if you're a volunteer. They might even appreciate you. <laughs> Rather than demand something else. So any, any questions so far about... Yes? Yeah. What do you think it is about the end of life? Because I've, I've been quite curious about that for many years now. And I have a yoga teacher who always starts with East Korean. And he always says to me, remember, death is in your pocket. He yeah. keeps death in your pocket. Yep. Um, do you think it's the fear of the unknown? Um, and it's a two-part question. And do we go back to our religion of youth yeah. when, we, when those people, so you were raised Jewish, raised Catholic, or whatever, and maybe you didn't practice for so many years. It, do people go back to their youth, to their... Because I, I, I found that in my, uh, my aunt and my grandmother, uh, just before dementia set in, I would always go home. And during my vacations, I would, I would go every night and feed them or whatever. And my grandmother couldn't remember my name, but she would tell me stories of Spain. And, and it was, there was always religion in it, and yet she wasn't really that religious of a person. So I was just wondering if it was just fear of the unknown, you know. Yeah, I think the first part uh, about why are we so afraid to die? Well, we have to look at what's afraid. Is our body afraid to die? No. Our body hasn't got a clue it's even alive yet, let alone die. So the part of us that's really afraid to die is the ego. It's the self. It's that sense of self. It's that controlling factor that we all have. And, and, and death takes away all control. <laughs> so uh, it's the ego death that uh, most people fear. Now, they may not call it the ego death, but that's what the, where the fear comes from, I think. And when you practice meditation on a regular basis, what you're literally doing is allowing the ego to um, rest for a while. You're anesthetizing it. You're not killing it, but maybe you're subduing it a bit or allowing it to take a break, not have as much discursive thought as it usually does, and, and, and get the sense of what it feels like not to be ego-driven. You know, is it safe to not have the ego rattling in the back of your head all the time with all those ideas and past and future issues that we all deal with in this present moment that has nothing to do with past or future. And you, and you go, yeah, okay. It is sort of safe. But then the ego arises and says, no, I'm in charge. You can't feel safe with that. I protect you. I protected you your whole life. You can't live without me. And, of course, the ego is absolutely correct when it starts talking like that because look at Ronald Reagan with Alzheimer's. 
So once the ego does leave us, if it does, uh, we're dependent on others to take care of us. So it's really an important aspect of life and one of the challenges we have when we die. And for a long time, back in the 60s and 70s, the Buddhists were fond of saying, our job is to kill the ego. We're going to kill the ego. And I always thought it was a little drastic, because I sort of like myself in that way. Now, myself isn't always skillful. It makes a lot of mistakes. But, heck, he's been with me my whole life, you know. And so I've grown used to him. I just need to create a new relationship with him. That's all. I don't need to kill him. I mean, self-ego is not a very good master, but it's a wonderful tool. And so Buddhism allows us to sort of see how we can use the ego to our advantage and those and the advantage of those around us. So I think one is the ego death. It's really the, the issue there. And to the second point, I would say yes. Absolutely, we often revert to childhood religions. And, and that came up uh, at a uh, Buddhist Sunday school. I was giving a presentation to some young people. And the parents were really disappointed with how many Buddhist children were becoming Christian. Because they thought Buddhism was fine. It worked for them. Their whole life worked for their parents and their parents before them. But now they're in America and everybody's a Christian. And every dollar bill has in God we trust. And, you know, and so a lot of the Buddhists were leaving Buddhism to be Christians. But this one lawyer said, you know what? Let them leave. Because when they really need their religion, they'll come back. And I think that's true. Now, in my case, I, I the foundation of, of Lutheranism that I, it wasn't very deep. It wasn't very solid. Uh, I just, you know, was there because the parents were there. I had no choice. So I'm thinking I'll probably be okay with being a Buddhist when it's time to use my religion. But if someone needs to go back, in Buddhism that would be fine. We don't, we don't say that's wrong or terrible. We say that's your choice. You know? And Buddhism is about freedom. Freedom of choice. So it's cool. So we have some people coming to Buddhism and they hang in there for a while and then they leave. Some people become Buddhists. They actually take, go through the, you know, the, the Buddhist ceremony take the three refuges and the five precepts, become an official Buddhist, get a certificate with their Buddhist name on it, suitable for hanging on the wall. It's very nice. You know, and, and other people just like meditate and go to church on Sundays. And then meditation is all they wanted to do. And that's fine. So a good, good question. And, and uh, death, in Buddhism they say death is your co-pilot. You know? and, and young people I don't burden with that. Because right, they, they're still learning how to live. So I have found in teaching Buddhism that if I'm teaching people who are under 30, I talk about how, how to be happy. And if I'm teaching people over 30, I talk about how not to suffer. But it's the exact same message. Now, the over 30 crowd, I often encourage to think of death as their co-pilot. And why is that? Is that morbid to think that way? Well, you know, for a while, I thought it was pretty pessimistic, you know? And, of course, it turns out to be simply realistic. Uh, and, and if you are aware of your own mortality, if you're aware that you'll be dead, we don't know when, why not have a little urgency about your life? 
why not get up a little earlier in the morning? Because, heck, this could be your last day. Why not stay a little, up a little later at night? Why not, when you're talking to someone and having an argument on the phone, hang up, but not hang up with anger, hang up with love and joy? How can you be that? Maybe the last time you'll ever talk to them, and you don't want them to have their last conversation with you being one of anger. So, how would you do your life differently if today was your last day? You know, that's how I look at it now. That's why I think death as my co pilot is a concept that is useful for me because I'm known to be lazy on occasion. I'm known to want to sleep in once in a while. Stay up late, watch Jay Leno. And I got other stuff to do, you know? 57, 67, 77? Okay, how many more years? And each year that happens in my life, new boundaries seem to arise just to challenge me. Single vision, bifocals, trifocals. Hearing isn't quite as good as it used to be. Large rooms, the sounds aren't quite as sharp as they used to be. I look at people's mouths moving and I'm going, what? And of course, riding a motorcycle didn't help, did it? You know? So uh, I realize that this aging process is, is really an important part of my practice now. And, and as I age... And sometimes my feet hurt for no apparent reason, you know. And I see an older person, older than I am, on the street sort of walking like they're walking on pebbles. I'm thinking, gosh, how much longer do I have before I'm like that? What do I need to do before that happens to me? What do I need to do before I can't hear or see any longer or use my computer? You know, how many do I want to write that book? Do I want to practice that next song on my guitar? What do I need to do? And so that urgency has been useful for me. But you can't take it too far because you can really get depressed if you just fixate on death. Death needs to be the incentive behind life. It doesn't need to be the focus and the end goal. We already know that. We know how this story is going to end. It's ended that way for everybody. Even Jesus Christ had to die. He was reborn. The Buddha wasn't. And I'll get into that, too. Okay. Uh, any more questions? I sometimes... Yes? I don't know if this... You don't have to answer it, but I was wondering what did the Catholic priest say was their reason that they are celibate? Oh, yeah, you know, uh, it was really a, a long presentation. The Catholic priests uh, are really uh, very smart people and well-educated. And there was like a 10-page thing, which is on my website. If you want to read it, it's up there. If you, if you want to go to this website I put together, it's called monksinthewest.org. Monksinthewest, one word, dot org. And you can find the paper that the Catholic monk wrote. But... Um, I, I, I give you just the best line from the whole conference. A young monk, young Catholic priest monk, uh, who had been in relationship with a girl and decided it wasn't going to work out and less than a year later had signed up as a Catholic priest monk living someplace in South Dakota or something. You know? 
And, and he was reflecting on why he had chosen celibacy. And he said he found that God was a better kisser. You can't get better than that. <laughs> so his religion seemed to satisfy all his needs. Most cool. Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Uh, as you can tell, I can talk forever. And, um, and the stories are deep, and the, and the well doesn't seem to want to run dry. So it's 8.30 now. We're going to be going until 9.30, right? Uh, two hours. So why don't we take a break, and then uh, we'll get into the story of the Buddha. All right, so I guess 10, 15 minutes. That'd be good. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's it. That was Class 1, Part 1 of a class I taught at Loyola Marymount University, uh, Spring Extension 2007. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. Um, Class 1, Part 2, will be available soon. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A.info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, please visit iTunes and do a search for Urban Dharma, or visit my website and go to dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>